High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is the last installment of our ongoing series, Gossip Girls. The desire of people to tell a story that is the dream of which my town was built. <laughs> oh, what a spot to be in. There are two of them in town. Now, it isn't Luella Parsons, is it? Must be Miss Hedda Hopper. What about public insults? Did you ever suffer at the hands of the old Crocs, Lolly, and Hedda? Hollywood's best-known, best-loved, most distinguished reporter. Movie news from both Hollywood and New York. And that dream will remain forever. Today, we're going to talk about how Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper ended their careers and lives. That'll take us up to the mid-1960s, to the point just before what we think of as the Hollywood New Wave, in which films like The Graduate and The Godfather forced Hollywood to modernize to catch up with their audiences. This was about a decade before movie gossip became a force in nightly television and four decades before it moved to the internet. How did we get from there, from the golden era of Hedda and Luella, to the extremely different world of the 21st century? How can we possibly draw a line from Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons to the Daily Mail and Dumois? It's not easy, but I'm going to try. So join us, won't you, for the final chapter of Gossip Girls. William Randolph Hearst died in 1951. By the end of that decade, his newspaper empire, now run by Hearst's son Bill, was crumbling. As the Hearst Corporation declined, so did Luella Parsons' reach. By 1958, her column appeared in only 100 newspapers nationwide. Meanwhile, Hedda's popularity had held steady. Not only were her newspapers doing fine, but she seemed to do a better job than Luella of adapting her shtick to a changing world. Last week, we discussed Hedda's embrace of stars like Marlon Brando and James Dean. But there were other factors, too. George Eels, who wrote a book called Hedda and Luella, speculated that the transparency of Hedda's bias made it easier for her to adapt when the studio system started to fracture. 
Where Luella aimed to speak for the whole industry, Hedda always spoke first and foremost for herself. That made it possible for her to nimbly shift with the wind. Hedda also, for better or worse, had a better sense for self-promotion. In 1950, when Billy Wilder asked both Luella and Hedda to appear as themselves in his satiric Hollywood melodrama, Sunset Boulevard, Luella turned the opportunity down, thinking Wilder would make her look bad. But Hedda was game, and in the movie, she's seen owning the story of Norma Desmond's murderous descent into infamy. Luella looked worse for not having been a part of it, out of touch and out of the inner circle. Both Hedda and Luella saw an opportunity to cash in on their status as elder stateswomen by writing second autobiographies in their 70s. Parsons published Tell It to Luella in 1959, and in it, she more or less argued for the movies to return to the glory times of 1939. She celebrated the old studio moguls, all of them retired and or dead. She lambasted contemporary movies and made surprising suggestions for the future. Hollywood is feeding ammunition to the Soviets in far too many pictures which distort our American way of life into evil, careless morals, violence, and worst of all, perversions. Why not turn our best writers loose on such all-American activities as 4-H clubs and to showing off farm people and teenage farm children? Putting aside Luella's perhaps misplaced enthusiasm for films about teenage farm children, there were two protests against change hidden inside this brief excerpt. Luella was now using her columns almost daily to protest the return to the fold of formerly blacklisted screenwriters, a show of anger that seemed way behind the times by 1959. This was the year that Kirk Douglas and Otto Preminger and others essentially broke the blacklist once and for all by hiring Dalton Trumbo, who had secretly penned two movies that had won screenplay Oscars while blacklisted, to script Exodus and Spartacus. The other issue here is what Parsons calls evil and perversions. This refers to movies that pushed the boundaries of what remained of the production code, such as Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and Some Came Running, which were challenging traditional family entertainment like Auntie Mame and Old Yeller for the top spots at the box office. After an extremely painful decade for their business, the studios that were still in the game were ready to evolve in order to compete not just with television, but with theater and novels, which were dealing with themes like sexuality and alcoholism and depression with much more clarity than most Hollywood movies. Hollywood was passing Luella by, and yet she seemed unable to retire. Instead, she drank more and often called the newspaper desk to dictate her column while drunk. It was part of her contract that the editors run her prose as they received it, which meant a lot of incoherent Luella Parsons columns were syndicated in the late 50s and early 60s. At least they weren't seen by too many readers. In 1962, Luella's hometown paper, the Los Angeles Examiner, published its last issue. Luella's column was now published locally only in Hearst's afternoon paper, which meant that by the time anyone in the industry was able to read her, everything she had written had already been in the morning trades. Her columns were still syndicated, but due to the diminishing of Hearst's empire, by 1962, Parsons' column was only appearing in 70 papers nationwide. Hedda, though also losing reach, had an audience twice that size. A year later, Hopper published her second autobiography, called The Whole Truth and Nothing But, a title that only seemed ironic once the book got her sued for libel. Hedda's first book, called From Under My Hat, 
was published in 1952 to big sales, but no controversy. Back then, Hopper had a couple of safety nets protecting her from herself. Dima Hirschberger, Hedda's manager, would customarily review her columns before they went to press and delete anything that she felt could draw accusations of libel. When Dima was not available, Hedda's assistant, Speck McClure, knew to take everything she wrote to the LA Times legal department for vetting before it was published. Hopper would only sometimes notice the work of these censors, and occasionally she'd be pissed. But as McClure put it, she'd forget quickly. But the intervening 11 years had changed the culture so much, and Hopper gambled that what readers wanted, post-confidential, was a mean-spirited airing of grievances and sordid details that she hadn't been able to get into newsprint. Such as an affair which Hopper claimed had occurred between actors Michael Wilding and Stuart Granger, before Wilding married Elizabeth Taylor in 1952. At the advice of several friends and colleagues, Hopper had deleted parts of her Wilding story before the book went to print. But Wilding still claimed in his $3 million libel suit that there were 12 misstatements of fact about him in the published text. After two years, the suit was settled. Hedda and her publisher each paid Wilding $50,000, and the passages about him were deleted from subsequent printings of The Whole Truth. The book also included a catty chapter on Luella, which seemed especially cruel, given that Hedda well knew Parsons was not really in a position to fight back. Not only was her power receding, but so was her health. A few months before the release of Hedda's book, Luella had been hospitalized with both shingles and pneumonia. After six weeks in a hospital bed with no improvement, she was considered to be close enough to the brink of death that a Catholic priest was brought in to deliver her last rites. Hedda came to visit too. With all of her defenses down, Parsons told Hedda how she really felt. I'm so tired of this place, and I'm so sick. Luella's frank admission of frailty moved Hedda to perform an uncharacteristic act of kindness. Hopper called Harry Brand, then the publicity director of 20th Century Fox, and gave him Dr. Hedda's diagnosis of Luella's prognosis. If you want her to live, you'd better get her out of that hospital. She'll never recover until she's moved. After talking to Hopper, Brand arranged to have Parsons move to the Beverly Hills Hotel. It would have at least been a more luxurious place to die, but Luella recovered, at least temporarily. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. 
netsuite.com slash remember. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's hard to overstate how remarkable it was that Hedda Hopper made the effort to try to save Luella Parsons' life. And not just because it was Luella Parsons, her famously longtime rival. Those close to Hedda reported that she was a foreigner to intimacy. As her assistant Speck McClure put it, one of the tragedies of her life I always felt was that she lacked the capacity for either deeply loving or being loved. Her whole life was more or less work. Of course, in a real sense, Luella Parsons was part of Hedda's work. Maybe she feared what she herself would become without Luella to push against. As big as their differences were, Luella and Hedda were the only people in the world who could come close to understanding the experiences of the other. When they had meant for that lunch at Romanoff's back in the 50s, and the whole industry had gathered around to stare, holding its collective breath for an hour in anticipation of the explosion that seemed inevitable when Hopper and Parsons compared notes, Hedda had leaned into Luella and cracked. Doesn't this prove to you what a lot of shits there are in this town? There were a lot of shits. And both Hedda and Luella could be shits. But they were shits of the same feather. As Hedda herself had said in March 1953, after having to undergo a hysterectomy, You have to be hospitalized once in a while to realize how nice everyone is. Less than two years later, Luella fell and broke her hip. By that point, everyone in Hollywood knew that Luella's column was mostly ghost-ridden by her longtime assistant, Dorothy Manners. In 1964, Luella finally gave up the charade. The broken hip would leave her undeniably out of commission. The column was finally given Manners' byline, and Luella went into a convalescent home. Now Hedda was the grand dom. But of what? Everything had changed so much. Back in 1961, Hopper had resigned her membership in the Academy in protest of the way the tide seemed to be turning. A recent Oscar had gone to the French actress Simone Signoret, who was internationally known as a leftist activist. As Hopper wrote in her resignation letter, I don't like the way it is going. I think the pictures chosen for awards this year show us in the wrong light all over the world. The actresses nominated, for the most part, played the roles of whores. Last year, we honored a commie. Things had only gotten worse in Hedda's view by 1964. The biggest movies of that year were Mary Poppins, My Fair Lady, two Pink Panther films, two James Bond films, and A Hard Day's Night, a lineup that suggests Hedda's circa 1939 campaign against the colonization of Hollywood by the English, had backfired enormously. It was also the year of Dr. Strangelove, and it's hard to imagine anything making Hedda Hopper madder than a movie made by a reputed genius that used the Cold War as a source of comedy. She implied that its director, Stanley Kubrick, was worse than a communist, because, as she put it, No communist could dream up a more effective anti-American film to spread abroad than this one. In 1963, Hopper finally embraced Sidney Poitier after watching Lilies of the Field, calling him one of our great, great actors. Hedda successfully campaigned for Poitier to win the Best Actor Oscar becoming the first black man to do so. 
But how much had actually changed? Hopper advocated for Poitier while singling him out as exceptional, as a credit to his race. At that time, Hedda publicly opposed the Civil Rights Act and in private correspondence expressed her fears of what would happen if it passed. It gives Negroes supremacy over the whites. The act became law in July 1964. After Barry Goldwater was defeated by Lyndon Johnson in the presidential election that fall, Hopper was asked to tone down the political slant of her columns. As Hedda put it, snippily, The syndicate tells me they have their own political writers, and I'm not one of them. Hedda didn't have to hold on in this new world for long. In 1966, she rather suddenly died at the age of 75. Luella would outlive her by six years. When Harriet Parsons went to visit her mom to tell her about Hopper's death, Parson absorbed the news for so long that Harriet thought maybe she hadn't understood it. Then, Luella burst out with a reaction. (gasps) Ah, good. The exit of both Hedda and Luella in the mid-60s certainly marked the end of an era. Nine months after Hedda died, Mike Connolly dropped dead at the age of 53. A year later, Walter Winchell, disgraced by his association with Confidential, his support of Joseph McCarthy, and his clash with the Kennedys, amongst other things, was reduced to taking out an ad in Variety in search of a home for his column. Within five years, Sheila Graham would retire to Florida to write a number of books, burnishing her own legacy. With all of these storied gossips gone, who was going to replace them? Probably no one, speculated AP entertainment writer Bob Thomas in 1968. Their successors are pretenders to thrones that no longer exist. Gone are the days when Hollywood was a tight little town that ruled the entertainment world, and hence could be ruled by feminine columnists. Thomas was wrong. Both Hedda and Luella were literally replaced in the papers they had appeared in by other female columnists. Joyce Haber and Dorothy Manners. And soon, the New York papers would host a number of female columnists, including Cindy Adams and Liz Smith, Doris Lilly and Susie. But gossip would soon enter a period of technological transition. Not unlike when people started getting their celebrity news on the internet, and the e-network pivoted to a new type of quasi-behind-the-scenes content, by producing shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians. In the case of the post-classical Hollywood transition, the key figure was a Jewish girl from Queens named Rona Barrett. Just as a new generation of filmmakers dragged Hollywood into a new era by showing them that there were profits to be made by making personal films, which were then swallowed by blockbusters, Rona Barrett showed a new way forward for gossip. The Rona Barrett way, just like the new wave of movies happening at the same time, was influenced by rock and roll, a new frankness about sexuality, and the general urgency of baby boomers, many of whom were now either college-aged or entering the workforce and driving consumer culture, to prove that they were neither as Puritan nor as blindly patriotic as their parents' generation. In other words, Rona Barrett would butter her bread by bringing to light everything Hedda and Luella had tried to repress. Rona Barrett would bring gossip into the future. But just as daring films with real things to say about American history and culture, like Bonnie and Clyde and Chinatown, engineered their own obsolescence by ushering in the era of blockbusters like Star Wars, The revolutionary wave that had made Rona look like gossip's savior ultimately ensured her obsolescence. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! 
It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Rona Barrett had suffered from muscular dystrophy as a child and had been forced to wear a body brace to school. Unable to move her legs as easily as other kids, Rona was not slim. In her autobiography, she cracked, I was four feet tall and about as wide. She was relentlessly bullied, and even as an adult, when she could walk almost quote-unquote normally and could afford to give herself a major makeover, she felt the insecurity of a child who had been called fatty and had feared she'd always be a cripple. Rona had started her career running Eddie Fisher's fan club. Fisher himself had quickly lost his luster in Rona's eyes by constantly railing against Jewish girls in front of his Jewish female fan club president. Later, Rona moved to Manhattan, and she started writing for fan magazines. She roomed with a handful of girls, including Diane Ladd, and befriended James Dean, Warren Beatty, Peter Falk, and every other young actor who was hanging around the New York theater scene in the early 50s. One of them was Tony Ray, who would soon appear in John Cassavetti's Shadows. Tony observed that, somehow, everyone ended up telling Rona their deepest secrets. Maybe, he suggested, she should try to be the next Hedda Hopper. At the end of 1958, Rona moved to Los Angeles, and thanks to her New York connections, she fell in with a scene of young celebs, including Bobby Darin, Robert Wagner, and Natalie Wood. They'd all hang out at coffee shops together, and Rona would sell items about members of her social circle to magazines like Motion Picture. Eventually, that publication made her a columnist. Motion Picture planned to run Rona's byline right next to Hedda Hopper's, but they wanted the young columnist to differentiate herself from the old vet by giving her own column an edge. They made it a condition of Rona's hiring that once a month, she published one unflattering truth about one star. Rona agreed. She didn't want to hurt the people she was close to, but she also saw that someone had to puncture the spread of publicity pablum so that it didn't fully colonize entertainment media. I believed in the message of Hollywood, Rona later wrote. Heroes and heroines, life as a dramatic struggle. But I wasn't going to uphold false idols or fake the drama. If a moving, inspiring singer like Eddie Fisher turned out to be shallow and prejudiced, that didn't change the truly beautiful people from being beautiful. No one reaches the top without something unique. What was wrong with letting the world see both sides, all facets? Rona had tricks for getting stories about stars that no one else was getting. In order to throw them off their memorized talking points, Rona would ask inappropriate questions, such as, and here I'm quoting directly from her memoir, how good a fuck are you? Or, have you ever attempted suicide? Needless to say, I seldom got answers to those questions, Barrett admitted. But after asking one of them, they didn't dare give me any pap or press agentry. Barrett was incredibly ambitious, and whenever she hit a professional plateau, she stepped back, assessed the situation, and figured out how to get to the next level. This was something that neither Luella Parsons nor Hedda Hopper really ever had to do. 
given their cushy long-term gigs and personal relationships with the men who published their flagship papers. Rona's drive and self-possession, her willingness to reinvent herself as the context changed around her, put Barrett in league with Sheila Graham. Like Graham, she saw value in looking as glamorous as the stars themselves. Not long after moving to Hollywood, Rona got a nose job and started seeing Kim Novak's weight loss guru, a masseuse who re-sculpted Rona's body with her hands. She would always be that insecure little girl who went to school wearing a brace, who winced as Eddie Fisher complained about Jewish women. But she could fool everyone by looking as confident as she wanted to be. Eventually, Rona landed a syndicated column for the same service that ran Sheila Graham's column. This put Rona in prime position to take over for Graham when she inevitably retired. But almost as soon as Rona hit this milestone, still so important for making sure celebrities and their publicists read her columns, she realized she was climbing a mountain that would soon implode. Newspapers were still tied to the Puritan ethics that had made Luella Parsons exclusive on Ingrid Bergman's pregnancy such a shock way back in 1950. And Rona's editors frequently censored her columns, cutting items on premarital sex and recreational drug use, and telling Barrett that such material was really not necessary. Rona started writing in code, If she wanted to say everyone was smoking pot at a producer's party, she'd write that the event, quote, will long be remembered as one of the great highlights in party giving. The newspaper editors and most of their readers took this at face value. But the hip 20-somethings got the emphasis on the word high and smirked and considered giving Rona their next exclusive. But making a newspaper gossip column a little bit hipper in the mid-1960s was a little bit like when they tried to show TikTok on network TV today. Which is to say, it didn't do anything to make newspapers seem less like an old and possibly dying platform for gossip. Everyone around Rona believed that once all three members of the unholy trio were out of the game, Gossip would cease to exist as something newspapers needed to devote attention and resources to. As it turned out, everyone wasn't fully clairvoyant in this respect, but Rona was smart enough to understand that she needed to keep looking forward. She set her sights on TV. When Rona started pounding down the doors of the networks, she was not an easy sell and not just because no Hollywood gossip columnist had had sustained success on TV to this point. Though she had turned herself into a svelte blonde with a pert nose, Rona still experienced anti-Semitism. At one of her network meetings, a producer pulled her aside and said, you'll never see yourself on national TV as long as there's a single trace of Brooklyn in your voice. Rona, who was not even from Brooklyn, knew that the producer really meant a trace of Jew. Barrett was aware that there was what she called the Jew quota on television, and particularly in news. In other words, those who did the hiring and casting made sure that there weren't too many. Just doing the math, when it comes to people on air who look or sound Jewish in the ways that would inspire conventional, hacky anti-Semitism, I'm not sure that's changed much. In Rona's case, she believed the people in power in the industry, though many were Jewish themselves, were so self-loathing and paranoid that they didn't want to be seen hiring too many Jews. She decided the ends were worth the means. And she hired a speech coach who taught Barrett how to further suppress her religious ethnicity. It worked. Beginning in December 1966, 
Rona Barrett appeared nightly on the local ABC affiliate in Los Angeles. Her segment concluded the nightly local news, which was hugely offensive to some news purists. But viewers loved Rona. They needed Rona. At a time when it was considered a moral obligation to watch the nightly news in order to stay informed on the death toll in Vietnam and racial conflict in nearly every major city, Rona's segments offered a respite of sweet escapism to look forward to. The program director smartly put Rona at the end of the newscast because he knew viewers would stick around through all the stuff they didn't want to hear in order to get to her. Maybe Rona wasn't exactly a war correspondent, but she did have reporting chops, and she broke stories. Some of the biggest celebrity stories of the 1960s, including the divorces of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burden, and of Cary Grant and Diane Cannon, and the marriage of Elvis Presley to a teenage girl named Priscilla. She wrote a column about Johnny Carson's divorce, and the next night on his show, he made fun of her, saying, Rona doesn't need a steak knife. She cuts her food with her tongue. Rona wanted to do more. She wanted to report what was going on in Hollywood's boardrooms as well as its bedrooms. Something her predecessors, meaning columnists who spoke to a general audience and not the industry itself, had not tried to do since Luella Parsons went to work for sometime studio board member William Randolph Hearst. In the late 60s, Barrett ran stories about the infighting between Richard Zanuck, who was running 20th Century Fox, and Daryl Zanuck, his father and predecessor, who eventually pushed his son out of the studio management. These stories enraged the Zanucks and the rest of the Fox brass, who tried to get Rona fired on the grounds that she was bringing down the stock price. ABC stood by Rona, telling the aggrieved parties that if she had printed anything libelous, they could sue. She hadn't, so they couldn't. But in the future, stories like that would be easier to bury and Barrett didn't always get the support she needed from her network. Barrett pitched ABC on a half-hour news magazine show, where she could do more in-depth interviews and report serious industry stories, a kind of 60 Minutes for Hollywood. The network liked the idea and launched the show without Rona's involvement. Barrett accepted shoddy treatment from ABC, because she thought she had to, because she felt that if she didn't, they'd just find someone else to replace her. It was Rona who had said that every celebrity has that something unique. It took her a while to realize that she had her own unique something and to cash in on it. By the mid-1970s, Rona was producing TV specials consisting of intimate, emotional interviews with stars. One of these became a nationwide sensation because it featured Barrett sitting with Cher on Cher's bed, talking about losing her virginity to Sonny Bono. Rona had made herself famous by doggedly asking the questions that everyone else was afraid to ask. She made herself infamous by beginning her 1974 autobiography, Miss Rona, this way. An inch, Rona, please. Let me put it in one inch. This is not a double entendre or a fake out. This is exactly what you think it is. Barrett begins the story of her life in a bed in a 1970s Acapulco hotel room in which an unnamed famous man who happens to be someone else's husband is begging her for partial intercourse. This is Barrett's way of introducing her ultimate thesis, that because she never let the stars penetrate her, in her interviews, as she put it, quote, I was able to get in them all the more. This act might have left her, in her words, an emotional cripple. 
but it was worth it. Until it wasn't. Three years before publishing this book, while on a career high, Barrett would nearly die from a pill overdose. The next decade and a half would be a roller coaster of victories and humiliations for Barrett. And by the end of it, Hollywood gossip would have found a new form. A form that didn't leave much room for Rona and her talents. In 1961, Hedda Hopper had resigned from the Academy because it was rewarding too many actresses for playing, quote-unquote, whores. In 1975, a year after Rona's sexually uninhibited and unhinged book became a bestseller, she was given a national platform by ABC, who syndicated her segments to their local news affiliates nationwide and gave her a slot on Good Morning America. But in the brighter, national spotlight, Rona felt more scrutiny and more pressure. Roger Grimsby, who anchored the nightly news at WABC in New York, constantly found new ways to belittle Rona through introducing her segments. Once, he described Barrett as the woman who made broadcasting two words. Another time, transitioning to Rona after a story involving a trash heap, Grimsby said, and now here's some more garbage. This kind of garden variety misogyny from a condescending man, Rona could handle. But she kept bumping up against a glass ceiling of a different sort. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rona was such a ratings driver on ABC's Good Morning America that NBC retooled their flagship Today Show to bring in a Rona-like female presence. Then ABC, looking to double up on a good thing, hired Barbara Walters away from NBC. Rona felt she had pioneered the kind of long, emotional celebrity sit-down, playing Mother Confessor to the Stars, that Walters would become famous for. Now that both were at the same network, Barrett was shocked to see Walters get the better time slot and the juicier star interviews. Later, Barrett was able to see that ABC had invested more money in luring Walters away from NBC, and they had to back up their investment. But at the time, Rona didn't mince words. Announcing that she was leaving ABC, Barrett told the New York Daily News that Walters was the cause of her departure. I'm smarter than Barbara, and I do a better job than she does on the specials. As a free agent, Rona was courted by all the networks. She signed a contract worth $1 million a year with NBC, which put Rona on the Today Show by day, and at night paired her with Tom Snyder for a show which they'd co-host from different coasts, with Snyder in New York and Barrett in L.A. A former news anchor who had been hosting a late-night interview show since the early 70s, Snyder expected to be the dominant force in this partnership, but Barrett had apparently been led to believe that they would be on equal footing. She was shocked when, on just her second episode... Snyder refused to throw to Rona in L.A. because he was annoyed that she had landed an interview with Victor Navosky about his Blacklist book, Naming Names. Rona was sitting in the studio with Navosky when she heard her co-host lie on air that communication difficulties had made it impossible to include her interview on that night's show. Snyder and Barrett's feud only intensified, and Rona ended up leaving NBC after a year. Feuds may have sold papers in the old days, 
but they were too unpredictable in an on-camera world. And if it was a woman feuding with a man, you could bet that every voice of authority would take the man's side. Tom Shales covered Rona's departure in the Washington Post. And reading his story, I have to admit, I started to get tears in my eyes because it was so viciously misogynistic about Rona, about Barbara Walters, who he referred to as Ba-Wawa, and to the entire enterprise of trying to report about movie stars on TV. Only in television, Shales wrote, could a person who ought to be squeezing melons at the Hollywood ranch market end up on the air where one is automatically referred to as talent. By now, Barrett's idea for an entertainment news magazine on TV had been successfully mounted as Entertainment Tonight. That show briefly hired Rona as a correspondent, but the gig was short-lived because the format didn't really have room for a reporter who was herself a major personality with a major salary to match. There are early episodes of Entertainment Tonight on YouTube, and you should watch them if you're interested, because it's kind of fascinating to see the format in an embryonic state. It's also clear from the very first episode, in which a very mild criticism of the previous night's Emmy Awards broadcast is delineated with the words commentary in block letters on the screen, that even if this show was a takeoff of Rona's original concept, to do a 60 Minutes for Hollywood, it was never intended to do the kind of muckraking that 60 Minutes was known for at that time, nor would it get as intimate as a Barbara Walters special. Someone like Rona would never be allowed to get into bed with anybody on Entertainment Tonight because the whole show was in bed with the studios and the publicists. It would essentially broadcast publicity material. It would be the epitome of a product purporting to take its viewers behind the scenes, only to then show them another staged scene. Entertainment Tonight's idea of controversy or spontaneity was embodied in the first episode segment on Blondie's Debbie Harry, who is portrayed as a freak who might be worth paying attention to because she follows in the tradition of Marilyn Monroe. At least she's a freak who seems happy to sell her sexuality. The segment, like all segments on this and every episode, is a puff piece. But Entertainment Tonight still seems to want you to direct your derision at its subject. Pay attention at the end of the segment to the facial expression on anchor Marjorie Wallace. She raises her eyebrows, purses her lips, and takes a theatrical inhale all of it as blatantly condescending toward Debbie Harry as men like Roger Grimsby were in their framing of Rona Barrett as a purveyor of garbage. Incidentally, Marjorie Wallace had been crowned Miss World in 1973 and then had had her crown taken away after she was caught kissing singer Tom Jones. You'd think maybe she'd have more compassion for someone like Debbie Harry in a situation like this. Or maybe, like so many women in the gossip industry before her, she felt she had to become one with the ruling patriarchy of the industry in order to keep her job reporting on it. Ultimately, Marjorie Wallace's silent commentary on Debbie Harry was the only way her show allowed her to tell the audience who she was. Gone were the days when half the reason to turn to a specific gossip reporter was their own unique cult of personality. When Luella Parsons started her first movie column in 1915, it had to be her, because she was the person who had the access. When Hedda Hopper got started in 1938, it had to be her, because she had a unique voice that was strong enough to compete with Luella. When Rona emerged in the 60s, it had to be her, because she was the only person trying to modernize the ancient institution of gossip for a sexual revolution age. But by the mid-80s, avid consumers of gossip didn't care as much about the person who delivered their celebrity news. 
it made sense to create a platform in which the reporters faded into the background. Because ever since the state of California put Confidential Magazine on trial, the public had been trained to despise the idea of gossip columnists through culture-spanning criticism. Put in print by men like Tom Shales, furthered by wounded stars like Frank Sinatra and Johnny Carson. By the 80s, the idea of single columnists as brands had largely been overcome by publications as brands. The key figures in that evolution were the National Enquirer and People magazine. The Enquirer had evolved from a New York tabloid to a nationwide sensation in the 1970s, based on the dogged reporting of its correspondents, who would literally dig through a politician's trash to get their story. It's because of the Inquirer that Beverly Hills passed a law against stealing garbage. Its circulation ballooned to over 5 million readers by 1978. Then, Carol Burnett sued them for libel, initiating a multi-year battle that didn't end up costing the magazine much monetarily, but did a lot to tar their reputation, especially after two other frequent Inquirer targets Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon, started rallying public opinion against the tabloid on The Tonight Show. The Inquirer had tried to settle with Burnett and had published a retraction and an apology. But she persisted with her suit, claiming she had told her opponent, I want to go to trial. You are the bad guys. After that it became clear that it was generally bad business for a publication to antagonize its subjects, at least when its subjects were powerful, beloved stars. The Inquirer invested in a new team of super-fact-checkers to make sure every controversial story had ample evidence behind it. But they also made deals with their subjects. In Hollywood and in Washington, D.C., to withhold their most incendiary scoops in exchange for volunteered tips. Though the Inquirer would live on, digging up dirt on everyone they hadn't made under-the-table deals with, the publication that had once posed the biggest threat to Hollywood was thus domesticated, lured into the same kind of pact to maintain fictions that had fueled the columns of Hedda and Luella. The game the Inquirer was playing was undoubtedly complicated when Time, Inc. launched their first celebrity magazine, People. The first issue of People, which was test-marketed in 1974, featured grainy paparazzi photos of Richard Burden and Elizabeth Taylor and a topless image of the Chiquita Banana Girl. Editor Dick Stoley said it looked like, quote, a whorehouse magazine. What Stoley and the People staff soon discovered was that if they classed up their pages just a little bit, offering the stars glamorous photo shoots and a sympathetic ear, celebrities would come to them with stories. Stories that were so juicy, as Stoley put it, quote, we constantly had to censor them to protect them from themselves. In other words, people's editors would have to make judgment calls as to which aspects of a celebrity's story the celebrity might cringe to see in print and then make sure those parts of the story would never see the light of day, even though they were volunteered to the reporter on the record. They did this to make sure celebrities would continue to see them as a safe space. That safe space produced articles that could be fun to read, even illuminating. But when you're making this many backroom deals and censoring your stories so heavily, are you still doing journalism? This was a different kind of mutually assured destruction than the kind Luella and Hedda practiced but did that make it any less corrupt as news? The only difference between this incarnation of People magazine and a celebrity's publicist 
is that people was doing a better job of damage control. Forty years after Henry Luce had used the pages of Time and Life to further Hedda Hopper's career, his company had their own publication that could help advance the Hollywood myth, with warts airbrushed away. People even redacted a story about Joan Crawford's affair with Clark Gable, which would have run years after both of them had died. People learned the hard way that when they failed to protect celebrities from themselves, they would suffer the consequences. In 1988, Jeffrey Katzenberg, then head of Disney, led a boycott of the publication when they refused to kill a story that a star had regretted giving them. By this point, celebrities could afford to boycott people. It was less important, because with the advent of Entertainment Tonight, Tina Brown's Vanity Fair, and other venues that bent over backwards to show celebrities in the light they found most flattering, celebs were able to shop around for the most friendly platform on which to reveal themselves. Around this time, Rona Barrett retired from her Hollywood life. She moved to Santa Inez and started the Rona Barrett Foundation, which she still runs today, working to support senior citizens. By then, the kinds of TV interviews Rona Barrett had pioneered had become versions of People magazine profiles, fully managed to protect the stars and the projects they were inevitably promoting. The kind of industry reporting that Rona had wanted to do, like her dirt digging on the Xanax and 20th Century Fox, became the province of trade columnists and reporters at the major newspapers, who were careful to only report on the movie business as a business, and to never mix in the kind of material about the emotional, sexual, or inner lives of the stars, unless it really impacted a studio's bottom line. Brands would occasionally pop up to rake muck. One of the first programs Rupert Murdoch created after launching the Fox Network was A Current Affair, which used once-respected newsman Maury Povich as the face for a televised Australian-style tabloid. A Current Affair broke a lot of celebrity stories, including the 1988 sex tape that got Rob Lowe accused of statutory rape. But perhaps no surprise for a product from the people who would soon thereafter bring us Fox News, they proved they were easily biased. A Current Affair ran a story on Steven Spielberg's 1989 divorce from Amy Irving and new relationship with Kate Capshaw, and used the theme to Jaws as part of the package. Spielberg reportedly called Barry Diller, the chairman of Fox, and said, Barry, if I live to be 90, I will never do a movie for Fox. For what it's worth, Spielberg broke that pact in 2002, but a producer for A Current Affair still estimated that not having access to his productions cost the studio $500 million over the decade-plus that he held firm. When a news organization and an entertainment organization share the same accountants, the news side can't justify running a story that leads to that kind of lost potential profit, even if the story is true. These types of threats didn't kill shows like A Current Affair. What killed them is that by the end of the century, nothing happening in Hollywood seemed as juicy as what was going on in Washington, and no one needed tabloid TV to tell them about Bill Clinton's sex life. Mainstream Hollywood gossip outlets saw that audiences accepted highly filtered and negotiated coverage of stars as though it were truly taking them behind the scenes. So there was no need to alienate the stars in the studios by actually going behind the scenes. Celebrities were thus afforded one last gasp of privacy, a last gasp recorded in the recent documentary Kid 90, culled from the home movies of Punky Brewster star Soleil Moon Fry. At the beginning of this season, 
We talked about the historical pendulum swings, referred to as the Thermidor effect. Around 2005, we saw the gossip version of the Thermidor effect big time. Glossy managed coverage of the stars had hit a peak with the e-network, the safe confessional spaces of Barbara Walters' Oscar night specials and VH1's Behind the Music, and a panoply of magazines which seemed willing to publish any kind of publicity fiction in order to secure celebrities for their covers. But the internet changed everything again. Now we got new gossip personalities and brands, such as Perez Hilton, Gawker, or certain characters in the TMZ newsroom, but they were largely processing the material brought to them by anonymous tipsters and paparazzos. Paparazzi, who get their name from buzzing mosquitoes, had been around at least since La Dolce Vita in 1960, and were certainly a burden on the biggest international stars such as Princess Diana. But the proliferation of online venues for video supercharged the American paparazzi around 2005. The more managed the coverage of celebrities had become, the more pent up the desire to consume something that looked like the truth. When that dam burst, we got Britney Spears thwacking an umbrella into a photographer's van, a news cycle dominated by Lindsay Lohan passed out in a car. Fifteen years later, as famous people emerge from the pandemic, gossip generally begins with either a long-lens professional photo that leads to stories on Just Jared or The Daily Mail, or else it begins with social media, either because a celebrity is disseminating their own story or because something like a screen cap or a surreptitious cell phone video is leaked or pointedly released. Over just the past year, the blind items on mysteriously authored sites like Crazy Days and Nights, which is dominated by Pizzagate-style conspiracies, making it the 2021 equivalent to Hedda Hopper, only possibly more insidious, have given way to the anon-please tipsters to the Instagram account Dumois. Dumois was given credit by some outlets for breaking the stories of Army Hammer's cannibalism fetish and allegedly abusive relationships. All Dumois did was publicly post screen caps of private messages and allegations posted on other Instagram accounts. But in today's media climate, curation is as good as investigative reporting. The technology that we have access to right at this moment allows celebrities to manage most of their own personas via their phones. On the other end of the equation, those desperate to really go behind the scenes use the same tools to trade tips and even wish lists of what their favorite stars could be up to or could be really like. In a sense, both sides are collaborating on fan fiction. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Certainly, if I've learned one thing writing about movies and famous people for nearly 20 years, it's that across the generations, technology changes, popular values change, but human nature stays the same. And because of that, everything ultimately ends up being cyclical. Right now, the authors of gossip are largely anonymous. But maybe personality journalism will come back. While I was writing this season, Oprah interviewed Harry and Meghan and showed us that some stories can only be delivered by one person because of their access and because of their persona. Of course, that interview only happens because of a celebrity couple who felt they had nothing left to lose and could only gain by telling their truth, or a version of their truth. In today's Hollywood, very, very few people have any incentive to tell the truth about anything. And as the stories of Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper show us, with a few exceptions, a few chaotic breaks in the matrix, maybe it's been that way all along.
Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guests. Julie Klausner played Luella Parsons. Julie wrote, created, and starred in Difficult People, one of the funniest shows of the last 10 years, which you can watch on Hulu. And she and Tom Sharpling have a podcast called Double Threat, which you can and should find wherever you get your podcasts. Hedda Hopper is played by Cole Escola. Cole can be seen in Search Party, At Home with Amy Sedaris, and their self-produced special, Help, I'm Stuck. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch, like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. You can also support the podcast on Patreon, where you'll get bonus episodes and my monthly media log. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find the show. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new story from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Good night.